read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Christmas time is one of those interesting times for a pastor because the, the, the passages are determined for you. The subject is determined for you. Everybody knows what's going to be preached in churches today and next week at least, if not for the past several weeks. We're going to talk about the incarnation. We're going to talk about the nativity, the birth of Jesus, the, the traveling to Bethlehem. We've got two passages, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Those dominate everything. And because they dominate everything, we can come to see them in almost a mythological way. Uh, it, it's, it's like when, uh, when, when churches pray the Lord's Prayer together, as we do at our church in Creighton at, at the end of the service. The Lord's Prayer is meant to be a prayer. It's meant to be something that we share in and an expression of our faith in the Lord. However, all too often the Lord's Prayer is recited so quickly that the words bounce off the tongue and never make it to the brain and certainly never make it to the heart. We can treat the Christmas story in just that way, as though it's kind of there, but it's really not the Bible. It's really not Scripture. Well, what I read this morning, what we covered last week, what we'll be covering next week, is God-breathed, authoritative, inerrant, infallible Scripture that speaks to us. And so we approach it that way. I was thinking last night, thinking about this passage, and uh, it struck me that, that there's a comparison to a sculpture by the, the sculptor Michelangelo. The, the, the sculpture is called a relief. It's not in three dimensions. It's a flat plate of marble that's carved down into, so it's kind of partially, you know, two and a half D, as they say today. It's called the Madonna of the Steps. And there's basically three figures in it. There, there's Mary, and then there's John the Baptist as a baby, kind of a toddler up behind Mary on the steps. And then Mary is holding the baby Jesus. Uh, Michelangelo did something that had never, ever, ever been done. Jesus has his back to the viewer. You can't see his face. He's nursing. He's a baby. He's doing what babies do. Jesus is clearly the focus, and yet he's not the focus because you, you can't actually see him. Th these verses that we've read in Matthew remind me a little bit of that sculpture, and that they're, they're very much about Jesus. It's obviously about the birth of Jesus Christ. They named him Jesus. It's, it's all about him all the way through. But just as much, Joseph stands out as a righteous man of God. And what is said about Joseph, I think, is significant. 
We're told in verse 18 that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Betrothal was not equivalent to our engagement. People in our time get engaged, and uh, the guy gives the girl a ring. Uh, I guess sometimes guys get engagement rings, but mainly it's for the woman. And and then the marriage is, is six months or a year, two years, three years, however long, when people actually end up getting married. If an engagement in our time is broken off, it's just broken off. They just break up. The, the woman gives the ring back usually, and, and that's all. They both kind of grieve their broken hearts, and they, they move on. At the time that Jesus was born in that culture, betrothal was equivalent to marriage. So when Joseph and Mary were betrothed, they formed a legal agreement between them, and they became at that moment husband and wife. He's still living in his home. She's still living with her parents, but they are from that point forward husband and wife. There was no ceremony after the betrothal that made it more marriage. In fact, there was no ceremony at all. What there was was a wedding feast. There was a celebration of the marriage that had been created through this covenant in the betrothal. The husband would go and and get his wife. He would bring her to the wedding feast. They would gather with all of their friends, sometimes over a period of, of days, and then he would take her into his home. The marriage would be consummated and life begins. But as far as the rabbis were concerned at this time, if a couple just started living together without the feast, there was no crime there. There was no sin there. They were married, after all. If the couple happened to be intimate and she got pregnant, they hadn't committed adultery or fornication. That baby was legitimate. It had parents who were married. So when Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant it causes a huge dilemma for him. Huge dilemma. Matthew wants us to know right out the gate that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. He wants us to be very clear that her character is pure in this. He doesn't want any guessing as the story unfolds. And I have to think that Mary told Joseph what had happened to her. We see that in in Luke chapter 1, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel went to a virgin by the name of Mary, who lived in a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And he said, Greetings, O favor one, the Lord is with you. And they had this interaction. And he said, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And then he describes who Jesus will be. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's what the angel said to Mary. They had a few more items of discussion in there and then Mary said behold I am the servant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word the angel departed Mary immediately leaves for Judah to see her cousin Elizabeth who's pregnant that's a journey of a few days at most and when she gets there she's pregnant we don't know if if the Holy Spirit caused her to conceive the moment that the angel left or if it was that night or the next day we don't know but she was pregnant within a few days She's with Elizabeth in Judah in the southern part of the the country for three months. Elizabeth was six months pregnant when she 
got this news, when Mary got this news. So I imagine that she stayed until John was born. She helped with that. And then she came home. And when she comes back to Nazareth, she's three and a half or four months pregnant. And she goes to Joseph. And I think she says to Joseph, an angel came to me, greeted me. I was terrified. He reassured me and he told me that our God has chosen me to carry his son. And I'm pregnant. I'm 16 weeks pregnant. I'm beginning to feel the baby move. And it's a miracle. And Joseph said, no, it's adultery. And he can't marry her. He can't marry her. Verse 19 says, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now I want to talk to you for a moment about the heart of this righteous man. That's what the word just means. It means righteous. The kind of righteousness that that people might talk about today, or if you think about it on the surface, is about behavior. It's about what you do and, and, and what you don't do. Biblical righteousness is always about the heart first. It always begins with the heart and begins with the character and then manifests itself through behavior, through our actions and through our deeds. And true righteousness is something that Matthew is deeply concerned with all through the gospel. In fact, I, I, I think we could say that the gospel of Matthew is a gospel of righteousness. Last week, as we looked at the, the genealogy or last week as we were going to look at the... Yeah, we did meet. Last week as we looked at the genealogy, we, we saw beginning with David all the way down through the, the captivity, all of these kings that are listed, and those kings are all graded at the end of their lives. Some of them were righteous, some of them were wicked. Joseph comes from a line of kings and of other people who some of them are righteous. They're righteous at the heart, and some of them are wicked at the heart. After Jesus is born and the wise men come, and um, as Matthew has it, although that was a period of time, and then they go to Egypt and then they come back from Egypt, Jesus grows into adulthood, then John the Baptist comes baptizing. And he's baptizing people for the sake of heart righteousness. He baptizes for the sake of repentance. When the Pharisees come and they basically say, what about us? He says, you need to repent too. Your outward righteousness is not sufficient. It's not righteousness at all. Repentance deals with the heart. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. John says, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, you baptize me so that we can fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is baptized. And then in Matthew chapter 4, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. And then to be tempted by the devil. In other words, to have his righteousness put to the test. Under extreme circumstances. Extreme duress. And he passes that test with flying colors. Jesus comes back. He begins gathering disciples. In the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have this depiction of what it means to be a righteous man or a righteous woman. From the heart. 
In the aftermath of that, Jesus demonstrates his own righteousness through his teaching and through the works that he does. In Passion Week, on Tuesday of that week, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus absolutely destroys the Pharisees in terms of their false righteousness, in terms of their outward good deeds, while inward they were ravening wolves, while inward they were like tombs filled with dead men's bones. Not at all righteous. So Matthew is concerned with righteousness all the way through. True righteousness is concerned with the spirit of the law, not merely the letter of the law. And that's what we see here with Joseph. He's concerned with the spirit of the law, not merely the letter of the law. According to the letter of the law, Mary is an adulteress. He should not marry her. And a provision has been made for her, for him to obtain a divorce. And by, by Mary, I mean complete the marital work. He's already betrothed. He's already her husband. So he's got the letter of the law. But we see the man is gripped by the spirit of the law. And he can't bring himself to cause her any harm. He's going to put her away quietly. He's going to divorce her quietly. When, he's, when it says he was unwilling to put her to shame, the word there means a brutally public disgrace. It means that you're identified in your sin and you're dragged through the streets so that everybody can see who you are and hear what you've done. At the time that these events are taking place, Nazareth, Nazareth was a, a, a large village, a small city, two to three, four hundred people. It's a small town like, like very few small towns really exist anymore. If Joseph had, had done this to Mary there, she would have had to leave. She could never have lived there again. Perhaps her parents would have had to leave. Joseph has a dilemma. Dilemma comes from the Greek word dilemma. And it literally means two propositions, two ideas, two opinions. He's caught. He can't move. I can't marry her. I can't divorce her. I can't marry her. I can't divorce her. If he divorces her, he has to give give her a certificate of divorce that identifies why he's divorcing her. That's not going to help her. And he has to divorce her in front of at least two witnesses. It's a small town. And so it says that he resolved to divorce her quietly, but notice verse 20, as he considered these things, it it wasn't over for him. I think that what we see is, is Joseph thinking and pondering and coming to a conclusion and then going back over it and wondering if it's the right thing to do. And yes, it's the right thing to do, but how can I do that? Maybe I could do... And he's trying to figure it all out. And as he considers these things, I think he falls asleep exhausted. That's, that's what I think. I can't prove that. But remember, we're dealing with historical events, not fairy tales. Verse 20 says that there's, a, there's an answer. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There's a lot going on here. First, we have Joseph continuing to think and ponder and weigh what he's going to do. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is that God sends an angel to him with a message. 
The Lord doesn't wait for Joseph to figure it out. He tells him. Third, the angel calls him son of David. Son of David is a messianic title. We see son of David applied to Jesus nine times in the Gospel of Matthew. One time here, it's applied to Joseph. In all of the other Gospels, it applies to Jesus. With one exception, that exception is in Luke 3 when it's literally Nathan, the son of David, the biological son of David in the genealogy. Joseph is the only one given the title son of David other than Jesus. See, to be a son of David means he is, he is directly in the royal line of descent. David had lived a thousand years before Jesus was born. David had 17 sons. One of those sons was Solomon. Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines, lots and lots and lots of sons. Rehoboam, Solomon's son who becomes king after him, has 70 sons, I think. Lots and lots and lots of sons. It's probable that in Israel at the time Jesus was born, there were thousands of men who in some way were related to David but not thousands who could trace their lineage directly back up through the quiet period, through the captivity to the kings and through every single king to David. Not many at all. I think maybe it was just Joseph. So when the angel comes to Joseph and says, son of David, I think what the angel is saying is, if the kingdom was restored today, Joseph, you would be the king of Israel. Why does he call him son of David? Because, again, I think, it's time for Joseph to act like a king, not, not a carpenter. It's time for Joseph not to defend his own, his own honor, his own dignity. It's time for Joseph not to simply act in those ways, but to think about the nation as a whole. To be concerned with the interests of all of his people. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. They were already betrothed. They were already legally husband and wife. So what that means is don't be afraid to take her into your home and consummate this relationship because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I talked a little bit about Joseph's dilemma. The answer from God is, Joseph, there is no dilemma. She's not an adulteress. She hasn't sinned. She's righteous. She's pregnant because of the favor of God. She's pregnant because of the grace of God toward her and toward all, toward all mankind. So Joseph, you don't actually have a problem to figure out. Mary told you the truth. She wasn't lying to you. She wasn't deceiving you. She was telling the truth. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, Mary giving birth to a son, that's a 50-50 proposition. That's, That's not a huge prophecy. You shall call his name Jesus is an interesting statement because it was the father's right to name a child. It was the father's right to name a child. And God the Father says, I've named my son. You're going to give him the name I've given my son. 
and he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, which in Greek is Jesus, which in Hebrew is Yeshua, which coming back into English is Joshua. Yeshua means Savior. Or God is Savior. Yahweh is Savior. But it means Savior. Jesus is so going to certainly save his people from their sins that, that they even name him Savior. And so, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Act like a king. Live up to this royal lineage that you have. This plan had gone back into the invisible hallways of history. It went back before Joseph. It went back before his father, Jacob. It went back before uh, Jeconiah, who was one of the last kings. It went back before David. It went back before Abraham. It went back before Adam. It went back all the way to before the creation of the world. God's purpose in creation was, was not to create some kind of an exhibit like a, like a huge zoo the size of the universe where he could just create everything and watch it run and come by and enjoy it. And then, wow, he came by one day and here are these little creatures that disobeyed him and now what's going to happen? And oh, now they're dying. I've got to figure out some solution. I guess before there was anything made, God said, I'm going to create all of this and out of all of that, I'm going to create these people in my image and from them, I am going to take a people for my own possession. I am going to raise up a people for me and I'm going to demonstrate my grace and my wrath by saving some and not others from their own sin. And it was all decreed. This massive plan of God that explodes into existence within the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and it grows and it flows through history as mankind spreads, as Abraham is called, as the nation is created, as they're delivered out of slavery in Egypt, they're brought into the land, the kings come and you have this royal line and it builds up in intensity until the focus of it is a baby of 16 or 17 weeks gestation weighing maybe a pound who is the son of God who is the savior of the entire world. Joseph was a righteous man. That means that he had trusted God just as Abraham had trusted God and he had believed God. And and the focus of that belief The foundation of that belief was the birth of the Savior. Joseph's faith looked forward minutes (laughs) to the birth of the Savior. Days, weeks, a couple of months to the birth of the Savior. Abraham's faith had looked forward 2,000 years. David's faith had looked forward 1,000 years. Joseph's faith had looked forward just a few years to the birth of the Savior. My faith looks back 2,000 years to the birth of the Savior. Your faith looks back 2,000 years to the birth of the Savior. Same faith, same focus. 
and the same righteousness that comes as a result. Matthew stops the story for a moment to say all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the promise given to King Ahaz by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We see this referenced in Christmas hymns, Christmas carols, hymns, they're hymns. Carols are jingle bells and deck the halls. Hymns are angels from the realms of glory, joy to the world. And we look at this and we say, Jesus, Christmas is about the Christ child. It's about the baby. It's about the baby in the manger. It's about the cute little baby and the cuddly and... The, the, the wise men in our nativity scene who are becoming increasingly bruised and chipped by our little grandchildren and getting glued back together again. Next time one of them breaks, I'm going to glue a basketball in place of the basket because it's like, you know, why not? And it's all very cute, right? It's all very sweet. It's very harmless. If you, if you read Isaiah 7, what you'll find out is that King Ahaz was a wretched, wicked terrible king he passed his own children his own son through the fire that means he offered his own son to molech by burning he was an evil man the promise made to him was not made to him as him it was made to him as the house of david because of god's promise to david as isaiah 7 begins the nation exists in two parts there's a southern nation judah that's where ahaz is and then there's a northern nation and that's israel and the northern nation the king of the northern nation had conspired with the king of syria to come and attack the kingdom of judah ahaz's kingdom and ahaz knew it and he is absolutely terrified because he's defenseless against that kind of a military power and the lord sends isaiah to ahaz to say they won't succeed it won't come to pass And I love the statement that is made there in in Isaiah 7. The Lord says, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. And a few verses later, he says to Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you are not firm at all. Your only deliverance is my promise to keep your enemy away from you. And so the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God says, I know you don't worship me. I know you don't love me. I, don't, I know you don't trust me. I know you don't believe me. So you ask for a sign that will convince you I'm telling you the truth. And Ahaz says, no, I'm good. I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that promise was given to a wicked king who rejected the promise. And as the next chapters of Isaiah roll out, you see the judgment of God on his people. 
maintaining the hope of the promise because of his promise to David. But you see the, the impact of the faithlessness. When Jesus is born, John writes in his gospel, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus was born to a a nation that was just like Ahaz. They didn't care. They didn't want to know. There was no proof that would convince them. They rejected him as a nation. Personally and formally. In the Gospel of Matthew, and we see him turn his eyes to his disciples and then promise to bring in the Gentiles. I, I say that because Christmas is all too often about candy canes and elves on shelves. And it's not about the reality of the salvation of a fallen people. And the fact that God's promise to save us came when we didn't want to hear it, when we didn't want to know it, when we didn't believe it. We weren't seeking it. And that's the state of our hearts until he brings us to faith. It's the state of every fallen heart today. They don't want to know. They don't want to hear. And we look at that and we get shocked. How could you not want to hear? How could you not want to know? How could you not believe this? And that unbelief goes back long before Jesus was ever born. And the faithfulness of God is what carries it through. It's not your faithfulness. It's not my faithfulness. It's not the faithfulness of the church for 2,000 years. It's the faithfulness of God to keep the gospel living and active and powerful in his word and to save sinners. We run across people who say, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. Nobody is. We run across people who say, I've made too many mistakes. We all did. No one is saved because they're faithful. We're always saved because God is faithful. Matthew closes with the actions of a righteous man. We saw the the, the heart of the righteous man in verse 19. Now we see the actions of the righteous man. Verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now that Joseph knows what God wants, there's no pondering, there's no considering, there's no resolving, there's just obedience. And that obedience comes because he's a righteous man, because at the level of his heart, he longs to obey. At the level of his heart, he wants to be where the Lord wants him to be. And now that he knows, there's no question at all. He immediately obeys. He takes Mary into his home as his wife. There's no physical intimacy until she's given birth. And then he gives the baby the name God has given, which is Jesus. He obeys even to that level of detail. If I can speculate here, and I think it's a safe speculation because this is history after all. Joseph got up that day, he got dressed, he washed his face, he combed his beard, he walked to the home of Mary, he walked to her father's house, and he appeared in the doorway, and they're all quiet, they're silent, they're trying to grapple with the news they've heard too. They know that he's a righteous man. Righteous men 
don't broadcast their own righteousness, but it can't be concealed. They look at his hand. He's not holding a certificate of divorce. They look behind him. There's no witnesses to witness a divorce. And I think he looks at Mary and perhaps he smiles and he nods his head and he says, yes, I know. It's true. And he raises her to her feet and he embraces her perhaps and she gathers her few possessions and then he walks her to, her, to, to his home. And as he walks her down the street to his home, the people of Nazareth stop and stare. What's going on? There's been no wedding feast. There's been no marriage celebration. What are they doing? And he, she enters his home as his wife. Joseph obeyed from the heart because he believed from the heart, because he was righteous at the level of his heart. And the heart of this righteous man continued to govern his actions. Let's bring it home, and let me just remind you of of three things. First of all, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. It didn't take him 2,000 years to keep his promise to Abraham. It was a 2,000-year promise. It didn't take him a thousand years to fulfill his promise to David. It was a thousand year promise. There was never a point where God was looking down at circumstances saying, boy, 2,000 years, man, I just wish everything would line up just right. He brought it all to pass, step by step, every every way. The scripture, uh, the angel said to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, the scripture says to us, do not be afraid to trust Jesus Christ for your salvation. He is a perfect Savior. He is a good Savior. The second thing that I think we need to remember is we need to be careful about taking Joseph as an example. He was a righteous man by biblical standards, but he was still a sinner in need of a Savior. It's not living like Joseph that will make us right before God. It's trusting like Joseph trusted. Imitate that. And then finally, we have a Savior. We have a Savior. True righteousness begins in the heart, not the actions. The heart has to be changed. We have a Savior who doesn't say, once you've changed your heart, I'll save you. We have a Savior who says, you can't change your heart. I'll do that for you. And as he changes our heart, we begin to have longings that are different. We view sin differently. We view sin with loathing and revulsion where we used to enjoy it. We still enjoy it, but it sickens us when we do. We no longer look at our faith in the Lord the same. We no longer look at religion as something that we do today and maybe tomorrow we won't do. We find him on our thoughts. The Holy Spirit intruding into our minds. We have a Savior. It's really important that we remember as we celebrate Christmas, and I agree with Caleb, I hope we all have a great Christmas. I'm going to get a great Christmas because Friday we go to pick up Grace from the airport. If nothing else happens, 
It's going to be a fantastic Christmas. But only because I've got a Savior. Only because I have a Savior. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us, your grace to us, the work of your spirit to convict us and to persuade us. So we ask for your help. We ask that you would continue to guide us and teach us, continue to transform us. And Lord, for any who aren't sure, for any who don't know, we ask that you would make their, their heart clear to them, that they would know whether or not they have actually trusted you, surrendered their lives to you, repented of their sin, and called upon your name. That's a work only that you can do in their lives. And we ask that you do it, and we trust that you will. Watch over us this week. Keep us faithful to you. Keep the gospel in our hearts that we continue to believe it. Keep the gospel in our mouths that we would be prepared to share it with those who need to hear. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.